0: Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, back in 1970, my next guest was drafted into the U.S. Army at the ripe old age of 19. He served two years in the military, and one of those years was in the Vietnam War. We do a deep dive into the life of an infantry sniper, the things he saw, the things he endured, the things he had to do to survive while fighting the dark side of communism. We talk about the amazing men he served with and the damage the media, Hollywood, and politicians did to these great American heroes. Please help me in welcoming Dale Euler. Dale Euler, welcome, sir. I appreciate you being on with us. Uh, Also with me is Mark Pratt. and We're going to tag team... Interview you about your Vietnam War service. How's that sound?
1: Oh, sounds fine to me.
0: Yeah. all right. <laughs> Here we go. And we have, like I say, we had an outline of some questions and things that 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 I'm curious about, but any any time through this, if there's a thought you have or you want to tell a different story, just stop me and we'll go down that road um there's no rules
1: sure we can do that
0: as much as you share as much or as little as you Well, not as little because otherwise it'd be pointless but got to share something but (laughs) okay so and one of the reasons i wanted to have you on and mark reminded me that you'd served in vietnam because i had forgotten because it's been a day or two since i've seen you Mm -hmm. um i have some other friends who have podcasts and uh some uh, patriotic podcasts where they interview um military veterans and things like that and i've i've only had i've had one guy that served in iraq uh, on my show and he's one of the podcasters that wants you on but they're saying that generally speaking it's hard to get um vietnam vets to talk vietnam vets to talk about their stories and their time in the service and so i don't know if that was if that's a real thing but anyway we got you here so no pressure
1: symbols they kind of had is they wore steel Russian helmets, which probably got a lot of GIs killed because Americans weren't used to seeing NVA with steel helmets on. Just Americans, so but that was kind of kind of like uh, Green Berets had their Green Berets, this NVA unit had their steel helmets. So. But uh, like I said, I was fortunate; we didn't have to. Get clearance to call in artillery on targets or airstrikes on targets or shoot anybody we saw that wasn't us out there but like to kind of compare it to like the area around home here is up in the mountains they supposedly relocated all the vietnamese civilians out of there but that would be like taking all these farmers and ranchers around here and say hauling them off down to Reading and then just turn them loose and tell them not go home. Well, naturally, the, a lot of people went back home, but so there were civilians in the area. We took uh, what I consider great pains, not to harm any of them, or they were just dirt poor, substance farmers, you know, what what they grew is what they ate. They, I remember giving, uh, oh, and our sea ration, which was our food. They had sundry packs, which had like cigarettes and candy and little sewing kits to repair our uniforms. I give an old Mama son a sewing kit, which probably amounts to 30 feet of thread and half a dozen needles and a dozen buttons. You'd have thought I'd uh, give her a brand new state-of-the-art singer sewing machine. She she immediately wanted to start repairing rips and tears in my uniform. I had to tell her no, save that for herself, you know. And we would uh, also share our sea rations with them. But the uh, one rule on that was you had to open the cans and let them either eat it or go to waste. Cause if you didn't open them up, then the NVA would come in right behind us and take the food away from them. I got in a, a big discussion you, with the new guy. he gave give mama Son some sea rations. I told him to open those up, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, so anyway, other than fight, make a big ruckus. He had, had a tremendous noise discipline. All these movies you see on TV where they're walking through the jungle and grab and talking back and forth, he didn't do that. You spoke in a murmur, actually, because it's harder to hear than a whisper. Nobody talked in a regular, normal tone of voice. But anyway, a few days after a kid gave Mama-san his C-ration, we killed some NVA, and they had American C-rations on them. So that opened his eyes up pretty good. Uh, Real quick. what What I was telling him was true, you know.
0: Well, let me back up a little bit, Dale, because I don't even know the reason. Because I haven't studied history since I was in high school, really, which is sad. <clears throat> um, what was the reason for being, for us being in that? Was there was that a war that was already going on between the North and South?
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, Vietnam has, had been basic war constantly since World War II. The Japanese occupied Vietnam during World War II, Then the French colonized Vietnam, and the Vietnamese hated the French, and they finally defeated the French at uh, Dinh Vinh Phu in North Vietnam, so America started getting involved trying to help the French out. Ho Chi Minh, the North Vietnamese leader, he was a communist, but he was also pro-American and he was educated in America. Uh, but, uh, America was so afraid of communism spreading through that region that they considered it was stopping the, what they call the domino effect. Mm-hmm. He's afraid Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and all the other countries in the immediate area would fall to communism. So even though we uh, didn't win the war, we did stop communism. The Russia and China realized we were willing to go to great lengths and to stop the spread of communism. So even though Vietnam is now a communist country, none of the, I don't think any of the others are. So, but that might all change the way things are going now. China is becoming such a dominant world power that that's pretty much it in a nutshell just stopping communism uh, we were paranoid about communism i guess you'd say
0: mark has a question
1: uh, yeah
2: go ahead. so what was your uh what was your role in vietnam what was your job i guess
1: well i took uh start out at the beginning, I took basic training at Fort Ord, which just learned, teaches you how to be a soldier, march and salute and all that. And I threw my duffel bag up on my shoulder and walked down the street to another barracks and took advanced individual training, which my MOS was 11 Bravo, or like we like to call it 11 bullet stopper, which is infantry. Um, so I I probably could have avoided being in the infantry. I scored real high on mechanical tests and, of all things, code breaking. But they give you a series of questions like, when you wake up, are you disoriented or are you aware of your whereabouts? So I told them I was always aware of my whereabouts and said, what do you like to do, play chess or go camping and hunting and fishing? And naturally, I, I told them camping, and hunting you're going to be in the infantry you start answering questions like that i felt like i should be in the infantry my brother was in the infantry and my cousin one cousin was in the infantry i had two other cousins there at the same time i were one of them was in the cbs and another and i believe was a clerk with the first cav division
0: now what is infantry for those that don't know much about what all that means
1: Infantry is the guy that's got the big, heavy backpack. We call them rucksacks on his back. You carry everything you own. My standard uh, ammo load was an M16 with a 20-round magazine. Most guys carried 14 extra magazines. I guess you could call me paranoid. I carried 21 extra magazines. (laughs) Okay. and, enough, be safe and enough spare ammunition to reload all of them. <laughs> I wasn't going to go thirsty. I carried seven quarts of water, where most guys probably carried about four. I took had uh, at least six hand grenades, two smoke grenades, sometimes a rocket launcher, which is called a LAW or anti, light anti tank weapon. Uh, probably, well, you had your own battle bandages and kind of little medical kit so i had one of those i carried a 45 i took off of a nva colonel we killed it was an american 45 he had probably taken off of a dead gi i finally decided i didn't need to pack that pistol around so i turned it in
0: (laughs) well i can imagine all
1: the weight you're carrying Yeah, we always thought we were carrying 90 pounds. We probably lightened it up to somewhere around between 40 and 50 pounds, I'd say. I guess talking about steel helmets earlier, some guys wore helmets. Most of us preferred not to. They, all they'd do is fall down over your eyes or bust your nose when you got shot at or go rolling off through the brush anyways. They did have a rocket hit in the 101st Airborne Division Chow Line one time and killed a bunch of those guys. So they issued us all helmets because lots of head injuries, I guess. So when we walked back down off the fire base out into what we called the bush, everybody pitched their helmets down in a brushy ravine and put their bush hats back on yeah, you had uh, had your dog tags, you wore one around your neck and one in a boot lace on your foot because guys did get blown up, get so bad that hopefully they had at least one dog tag to identify them. Yeah, and uh, well, I went in to, after I was in, the, I was in Delta Company, third of the 21st Infantry, uh, 196 Light Infantry Brigade. Uh, slots come open to go to sniper school. So I got into sniper school. One of the re- basically only requirement to get into sniper school was you had to have at least three months in country in a infantry company. So they had another guy picked to go to sniper school. I talked him into giving it up to me. So he had a brand new wife at home. I told him, well, your mail's going to get all messed up. She's going to think something happened to you or so I convinced him, me and him, went to the Lieutenant and I took his spot. Anyway, so. so I spent, uh, took 30 days of sniper school at Chulai, which was our division rear area. And then spent the last seven months of my one year tour of duty as a sniper.
0: So that's, so,
1: go ahead. So did you do two years or one year? One year in Vietnam, two years in the Army total, yeah. So our our sniper rifle, it was, oh, I don't know what the M16 weighed, not very much, five or six pounds. M14 with a scope on it probably weighed about 11 pounds. I carried 100 rounds, five 20-round magazines, uh, match-grade ammunition, and another 100 rounds in my pack, which weighed more than uh, 22 magazines and the rest of the ammo combined for 223, which uh, yeah, M 16 shot. So still had a pretty heavy load. But.
0: So how did that work with that job? Did you, did you have specific assignments that were called down from higher up or were you just sort of like with your, your company, marching oh. through whatever you, how, how did that, what does that look like? You like a day in the life of a sniper? I mean, it's.
1: Well, aside we had, from all the movie crap, uh, we had uh, I don't know, probably, probably about eight snipers in the battalion. There's uh, let's see, off of Bravo to Charlie four, four full infantry companies plus uh, Echo had a recon platoon. If they felt like they needed a sniper, they'd call up the fire base and request a sniper come out. Usually the snipers are out all the time with one company or another. It may have happened in Vietnam, I doubt it. Snipers didn't work, at least army snipers did not work by themselves. Sometimes we'd go out two snipers at a time, but we always took a fire team from the infantry companies that would be anywhere from four to six guys. One of those would be carrying a radio, so we could call, communications is everything, you know, in case we got in trouble, we could call the company for help, or we called in artillery and stuff several times, which gives you a feeling of power when you're 19 years old, and you can expend hundreds of thousands of dollars or artillery rounds just by making basically a phone call <laughs> but, yeah uh, yeah
0: i can imagine so
1: we'd just go find a good place to set up our security team they'd set up behind us watch our back trail we'd have the rto with us that's a radio telephone operator if we like one time we had a big rock formation we were watching it's kind of like home watching watching for digger squirrels you know that rock pile's got a digger squirrel in it it's gonna pop up somewhere this rock pile had a tunnel cut into the bottom of it it was oh the rock formation was probably 150 yards long by 50 feet high or so we kept, we observed that for probably two hours. I had another sniper, my best friend, Dale Morrill. He is from North Carolina with me. Finally, he says, I see, a, see that little guy up there now. I forget the exact words. It's probably had a few more four-letter words in it than that. But anyway, he was this observer, I guess, lookout. He was setting up in the shade of a tree at the far end of the rock pile. We guessed the yardage about 700 meters, which would be about 770 yards. And so I spotted for Dale he shot. And he, he knocked the guy off the rock and I'd, I'd been watching the tunnel entrance and that shot attracted some attention. The guy come out of the tunnel entrance and I knocked him down another guy come up to help the guy dale shot dale morrow and he shot him so then there's like people's nva swarming all over we had a ov10 bronco which is a observation aircraft twin engine it's got 430 caliber machine guns and shoots white phosphorus rockets to mark targets for artillery and airstrikes so he he got a artillery going on it for us. He said he killed five on the other side of the rock with a white phosphorus rocket. I seen it, well, at least one guy flying through there when the artillery come in and we observed I think it was 24 NVA going out one way and eight going out another way and we got the feeling that they were going to probably circle around and come back on us so we kind of cut down straight towards where they used to be and hot-footed it back to the company so that it's even like, got up wrote up in the little 196 light infantry brigade newsletter called oh geez. Chargers. So. it's
2: like setting an anthill ant on fire
1: oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's the best way to get away from our artillery run like hell because they can't adjust fire fast enough to keep up with you They won't let you do what you call John Wayne it you can only only adjust 105 millimeter batteries 50 yards at a time. We were trying to get them to about 200 yards at a time they wouldn't do it so.
0: (laughs) Well let me ask kind of a just a deeper where my brain's going you know when it's war so getting your head around taking another life even i mean it's the enemy and yet you've got to do but tell me what that's like Uh-oh. i mean after you after you did like <laughs> your first one i mean were you numb to it after that or what? what what's going through your mind
1: well i suppose it affected everybody different uh the guys i was with if we knew what high fives were then that's we'd have been high fiving we we're pumped plumb full of adrenaline and if if it wasn't for noise discipline you'd be laughing and yahooing around there we got them they didn't get us good example of that is we had uh what we called mechanical ambushes we'd take a claymore mine claymore mine has two pounds of plastic explosive in it 750 buckshot sized ball bearings on the front of it kind of curve shape you put the Face the concave side towards where you think the enemy's gonna come from. And uh, mechanical, you rig up a trip wire to it with a battery to detonate it. And we'd set, set mechanicals out every night to protect our night logger position. So one evening just before dark, one of the mechanicals went off. It was light enough, we could go out and check it out. So we ran out there and we had three dead NVA. They were fucking new guys in country. Apparently they still had receipts for the brand new AK-47s, had brand new uniforms on, fresh haircuts. One guy had both legs blowed off. The other two were killed instantly. We, did, we didn't take any wounded prisoners, so. Uh, squad leader put a couple 45 rounds in the wounded guy's head but they also had a Amer- brand new american hand grenades and trip bars and slick pins They's, they were coming down to set booby traps for us and yeah i was gonna say ours yeah. got them first so those Which, are three good three good nva right there
0: right well like i say it's it's you want to go home too
1: oh yeah end of the day yeah, like old General Patton supposedly said, the idea is make the you're not supposed to die for your country, make the other son of a bitch die for that his. Yeah,
0: you know, it's <laughs> it's a sad truth, but that's what unfortunately you've got to do. You know, when I get it.
1: And another thing I don't like, you see all these sniper movies or people talk about looking through the scope and seeing the man's eyes and everything. You don't see a man's eyes. Our our sniper scopes were redfield three to nine variables they had an automatic ranging system on them they had tick marks in the crosshairs a vertical tick marks at 300 meters on three power it was 60 inches apart which was about the average size of a vietnamese adult male from the top of his head to his crotch so if you could you turn the turn the power till you had those tick marks one on top of his head and one of his one on his crotch and you're going to hit him center mass sometimes so 300 meters with a three power scope all you see is a man out there you don't see any detailed facial features or anything
0: well hollywood's got to sexy it up so yeah
1: those are very effective out to 900 meters uh, that 700 meter shot we took was the longest shot I ever took on a anybody. They were good good rifles. Today's uh, Springfield M1A National Match is basically what we were shooting. We had match grade M14s that were semi-automatic only. It was at that time it was called the XM21. Navy SEALs still use a lot of them. I think. I don't know, Special Forces kind of like them, but that's about the only u- units that use that rifle anymore.
0: Let's let's chat a little bit about how the media was treating the war then versus maybe comparing to, you know, what they're at <laughs> now. What, uh, were, they, were they accurate or were they off all the time? You know, politics is politics. I don't know. It, it knows no season. What yeah. was your...
1: You know, I didn't find out till much later. The media, oh, like one famous shot they got, is a airstrike coming in with napalm, and the little girl's running out of the
0: oh, yes, napalm,
1: of naked and burned. Yeah. And they say, "Well, that wasn't even an American airstrike; that was a South Vietnamese airstrike." But the media played it up like America had done that. I'm sure there is a lot of collateral damage like that. But uh, yeah, probably just like nowadays, the uh, media's got to give their version over what actually happened. We did have—I uh, guess you could call him a reporter. He was a writer for Playboy magazine. Come out with us when I was still in a regular infantry company, and we. Sometimes we'd put our night larder up the the hooch that was in the area where our Vietnamese family lived. Uh, i say family, they were always old mama sons or little kids and called this uh, blind kids hooch or little, probably 10 year old boy that was blind there. He was always coming up, you know, feeling you out and wanting food is what he was wanting. We had this one asshole give him uh, some C4, that's plastic explosive, and he died from eating that.
0: One of then, your fellow soldiers yeah. gave him that?
1: Yeah, a guy from – we had two platoons. We were in our company. We didn't number our platoons. We had Killer Platoon and Kelso Platoon. This guy was in Killer Platoon. My squad leader, when we got back up on the fire base out of the field – proceeded to beat the shit out of that guy i don't know if he ever got in any kind of trouble for it or not i, d- I didn't know the guy personally but uh like i said the uh, writer for playboy magazine he he wrote a story about that i think that's in uh the august 1972 issue of playboy magazine if you get a hold of one it's called uh, blind slash dead kids Hooch." I didn't know the that little boy. I didn't know he. I didn't realize he had died. I read that article and I thought, no, that ain't right. And I got hold of my squad leader. Took me about 35 years after we got out of Vietnam to track him down. And he said, no, that uh, that article is true. That little boy died. So that's that's about the only kind of atrocity, I guess you'd say, that I know of that. Was committed by any of my battalion
0: yeah i guess that was my next question was it was did did you do do soldiers lose their humanity and or does does it does it or does does serving in situations like this just reveal who someone really is or do they lose their humanity
1: i really don't think they do we are you know we took care of wounds and injuries and stuff. And the civilians we come across, if they needed help, our medics helped them out. Uh, like I said, we give them food, and give them sew- those sewing kits. You wanted to get, get a good friend, just give old mama's on a sewing kit. So I always made sure I had a couple of those in my pack. That was really impressed me how much she appreciated something as simple as some needles and threads and buttons.
0: Well, it goes to kind of show you how people live under communism, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, they, and also they didn't care who was in charge, you know, all they wanted to do is be out there in their little, it was a bamboo and thatch hut. Most of them didn't even have walls on them. And they just wanted to be left alone so they could raise their crops
0: and live and survive.
1: Survive, yeah. That's basically what they were doing in the area I was at. We were nearest big city from us was Da Nang, which was about forty miles away, something like that. But uh, yeah, out in the mountains there, they were all on their own. They didn't have no help from anybody.
0: The the residents that lived there, you mean?
1: Yeah, the civilians. Yeah.
0: Did you did you run into? Were you always in little villages? Or, or were you out in the middle of nowhere
1: we were basically in the middle of nowhere uh, really high rugged mountains with I wouldn't say triple canopy jungle probably double canopy you know lots of it was definitely densely forested and lots of brush there were areas where we were in elephant grass or sawgrass, that stuff is eight or ten feet high and each blade cuts you, puts little wounds on you. Every little wound you get any kind of scratch or a thorn in you gets infected almost immediately. I had a little black thorn in my middle finger on the middle joint and the next morning I woke up that entire part of that finger from the in from the tip down to the palm was full of pus. I went to the medic and he took out a razor blade and said, I got to cut that open. I, I said, no, you ain't. You give me that razor blade, I'm cutting this open myself. I, I didn't really want anybody else whittling on me with a razor blade. So got that cut open and put some kind of disinfectant on it, I guess. Yeah, everybody looked like they were walking wounded over there because, like I said, when the medic got done working on you, you, then he bandaged you all up, so everybody had bandages of some kind on them. You only only went to one medic, Mort, of all things. He was a mortician in civilian life, so the Army figured he'd make good medic, I guess. He's you went to him with minor crap like that. He broke out a toothbrush and rubbing alcohol and started scrubbing it out and pouring alcohol on it. So from then on, you usually doctored the minor stuff yourself. So, you know, it was the best by far the best medic we had. If you got really hurt, you know, he, you glad to see him there.
0: Wow. Well, I guess that, that was one of my, my follow-up questions is like, what was the biggest challenge yeah, again? I, this is me. My knowledge is from the stupid shows I've seen on TV, and I'm sure they're not accurate in the least bit. But was it the weather? Just like you said, you know, infections. Every time you got cut, small cut, it was infected. I mean, what? Just, just daily hygiene. What was the biggest challenge that that you know, challenge to your sanity? I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, just surviving the elements was probably fifty percent of it. I guess. So. You're always wet, whether it's raining or not. It's so humid, you know, you might have 90 degrees temperature and 100% humidity. Uh, There's everything bit you, stung you, scratched you. There must have been 40 varieties of ants, probably every variety of mosquito known to man. Had two different leeches, uh, had small leeches that Tree leeches, I guess they were. They'd fall off the leaves on you. And Then we had what we called tiger leeches. They lived in the streams we crossed. I had one get on my boot. He probably, when he was fully stretched out, he was probably somewhere between 12 and 14 inches long. I never had a tiger leech suck any blood out of I me. Mean, they, they probably could have took about a quart. But the little leeches, they would swell up pull up they'd be as big as your thumb i woke up one morning in fact we called that the leech logger it was just absolutely alive with leeches everybody had leeches on them i had one at the base of each thumb looked like i had four thumbs and but two of them were black red looking dead and leeches you see on tv where you gotta burn them off and scrape them you just plucked them off like Picking a plum or something, they they weren't stuck down hard, but you bled like a stuck hog because they put that anticoagulant in you to make the blood flow easier. So, wow, you did did bleed a lot when you had leeches on. We captured one NVA; he had like half a dozen leeches on his neck.
2: Oh God, no!
1: We were going to take them off, and he was no. He's like he just like Mark because saying oh god no in vietnamese probably so <laughs> he wouldn't let us touch him one guy walked up with a bottle of had insect repellent and a little old tube but like a anti-congestant mist tube uh, trying to think of like dristan oh, he yeah, just, yeah. just squirted those leeches with that bug repellent and they just basically melted and fell off that I think that guy would have joined our side right then. See how easy it was to get those leeches off of him. <laughs> yep. With that many leeches on it, it looked like somebody cut his throat when they come off of there.
2: Oh,
1: man. Yeah, he thought that bug repellent was the greatest thing he ever saw.
2: Dale, could you, um, I know you have a pretty impressive shadow box on your wall. Can you just look at that and tell us what is in there? and tell us how you earn them.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> didn't really earn too much. Uh, if you look in the upper left-hand corner, you'll see that patch. It looks kind of like a wishbone with flames on each end. And right above, it's my sniper patch. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> the, the patch itself represents uh, back when they used to, Hundreds of years ago when they first started making rifles, they had matchlock rifles and they had a burning smoldering cord in it that would ignite the powder pan and then ignite the charge in the barrel of the muzzle Those are called matchlocks. So as a to symbolize always being ready, you burn your match at both ends. So that's what that represents is a match burning at both ends. Okay. I, for, I know the colors have some significance. I've used to know what it was, but I don't remember. Then you move over to the center, the <clears throat> light blue badge with the oak wreath on it and the muzzleloader rifle in the middle. That's a combat infantry badge. You got to be in the infantry and actually be shot at to get one of those. Oh, that's not earned very well. Is it? And the interesting thing about that, your ribbons on your uniform, <clears throat> the most important ribbons are on top, say like the Congressional Medal of Honor. Mm-hmm. And then on down the Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, Bronze Star, descending order goes down. The Combat Infantry Badge is worn above all of them, even the Medal of Honor. Mm-hmm. Even, huh. even though I'd much rather have Medal of Honor. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, patch with the Grim Reaper on it, right below the CIB, that was our unofficial company patch, Black Death, because we were a Delta Company. After I become a sniper, I, I transferred into echo company they were called the assassins i i prefer to be associated with delta company that's where i made my closest friends and stuff then the next patch over is the fourth infantry division that's a division i was assigned to when i come home back at fort carson colorado so the the patch the 196 light infantry brigade patch is what would be my combat patch? Also, being there were three brigades in my division. There's a the 11th Brigade of the Melee Fame. There's the 198th Light Infantry Brigade, and the 196th. They made up the Americal Division. The Americal Division, pretty interesting division. It's a, a like a royal blue shield with four stars which is a Southern cross, their version of the, in the Southern hemisphere of our Big Dipper. Uh, the AmeriCal division was formed up during World War II on New Caledonia. That's how it got its name. Uh, General Patch was a division commander and he put out a contest to name the division since it was brand new. He wanted to call it the Bush division and a private, I believe it was, come up with AmeriCal, which stands for Americans in New Caledonia. It was the uh, first infantry division to see combat in World War II. It was the largest infantry division in World War II. It was on Guadalcanal when the Marines were on Guadalcanal. I think, uh, The 25th Infantry Division, which my brother was in, was also on Guadalcanal. And I believe they actually suffered more casualties than the Marines did. But uh, the Americal Division has never set foot on American soil. It was deactivated when World War II ended. Uh, It was formed up again in Panama Deactivated again, and then reactivated in Vietnam and then stood, stood down again after Vietnam, the 196 light infantry brigade is the only active duty brigade out of the three that made up the division in Vietnam. My old infantry battalion third of the 21st is based at Fort Wainwright, Alaska, up at uh, Fairbanks. The 196 is based in uh, Hawaii now. So anyway, going on down, there's a, oh, I think a patch says Vietnam vet there, Aline bought that for me. And there's two rows of ribbons. Those ribbons are what you wear on your uniform representing the metals you got right below them. Just below the Fourth Infantry Division patch is another sniper pin that I had made up as a Christmas present to myself, jeweler down in Reading. And right below that is a expert marksmanship badge. You got uh, three different levels of qualification with your rifle and basic training experts, best you can do to pat myself on the back a little bit i was the only one to qualify expert my basic training company i think somebody might have shot my night fire targets because you couldn't see nothing and i i knocked all them down it was total pitch black darkness shooting at black targets (laughs) so i think i might have had a little help getting that expert (laughs) badge
0: hey Take credit where you can get it, right? <laughs> Turn right. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, the first medal on the left is a bronze star. Uh, I'm not even sure why I got that. Uh, like I said, uh, took a pistol off of a dead NVA colonel. I know my squad leader got a silver star in that deal. So maybe I got the bronze star. Me and him were. We walked point together. We walked a a two-man point in the infantry companies I was in. Uh, We had Mm -hmm. so many booby traps. Uh, Actual point man, when he was walking, he probably never looked more than 50 feet ahead of him. He was always looking at the ground and the trail (laughs) looking for trip wires or pressure devices or anything that was just out of place. The Vietnamese, when they set them, sometimes they would put Maybe three stones or three sticks in the trail or something, so there people wouldn't walk on it. Then we had the second guy. He was either called the slack man or the backup. He walked, I mean, immediately behind the point man, within three feet of him, and it was his job to look ahead and look look off to the sides, looking for ambushes. And then the rest of the company, the standard spacing was ten to. 15 meters which is a meters about a yard and a half so you got a 50 van infantry company they're strung out for over 500 yards down a trail
2: and that's just so. in case something did go off
1: the rest like of the guys
2: i said that's just in case something did go off
1: yeah you know you get mortared or a machine gun open up on you you know that would lessen the chances of a whole bunch of people getting hit. Like we had booby traps, everything from hand grenades to mortar rounds, artillery rounds. I don't know. We had one guy step on. We figured it was a 40-pound anti-tank mine. You could judge how many pounds of explosives were in the booby trap by the diameter of the hole. You figured about one foot diameter for every... Well, a 40 pound charge would be yeah, about every 10 pounds of explosives. So that made about a four foot wide crater that that guy stepped on. John Quinn, he was an RTO, never found any of his equipment. Found one foot in a boot, his shoulder with part of an arm on it, and some rib cage attached, and small pieces of a Picked up in a poncho. Jesus. Uh, yeah, that was that. And even as <clears throat> far apart as we were spaced, uh, there's three or four other guys wounded in that. Yeah, you didn't bunch up, that's for sure. The more guys bunched up together, the more inviting target it was. We never did figure out why Quinn tripped that booby trap he was like i said an rto he was back in the middle of the formation probably at at least a dozen guys had walked over that maybe stepped on it themselves it could have been what you call command detonated or my they might have had a wire strung out in the brush with a guy set hidden there with a detonator Uh, rto is a high value target if you don't have communications you're pretty screwed up usually there's an officer close by an rto all, all officers had their own personal rto with them so they probably thought they'd get an officer too if they got the rto
0: with these traps these booby traps would they be equivalent to the ieds that we see in the middle east right now
1: they, exactly they just just change the name we call them booby traps now they call them improvised explosive devices. We had, uh, we walked up on a couple of MVAs. There was a dead 500 pound bomb. A, a Didi Mao. Didi Mao means a whole last run in Vietnamese. And they were sawing that bomb open to get the explosive out of it. So we put a bunch of, c4 on it to detonate it put a 30 minute fuse you're not supposed to be closer than a thousand meters to a 500 pound bomb so we put our half hour fuse on it with our charge and hauled ass back out of the way and waited and waited and it didn't go off so we snuck back up there very timidly i might say yeah They had taken, the Vietnamese had come back and taken our charge off of it and was sawing it open again. Holy cow. So we put another charge on it, put a five-minute fuse on it, run like (laughs) hell, (laughs) and laid down in any hole we could find. I'll tell you, that's very impressive when a 500-pound bomb goes off that close to you. (laughs) Well, this
0: is how I can get my head around what that's like. You just think about these goofy little fireworks you buy for 4th of July that's you know the size of your thumb an m80 and what it can do so yeah i can imagine the devastation that that would cause
1: yeah, yeah there's a, they have all kinds of things to tear up the human body that's for sure uh, yeah. one, day, uh, one of your questions i see you had is uh, one of the good things i guess i don't know how good it was it was Enjoyable uh, when I went through infantry training at Fort Ord, we went took uh, went out on the M60 range. The M60 is a squad size machine gun, belt fed, shoots a uh, 308 round like the, a lot of your deer rifles have. The military calls it the 7.62 millimeter NATO. So we spent the entire day on the range. We had old junk cars out there for targets had 25 guns on the berm. So teach you to use a traverse and elevation bar like you have a choke point, you know, troops will be coming through. This is for nighttime. You got a bar that has calibrations going horizontally on it and a bar where calibrations going vertically on it that hooks to the gun and the tripod to keep it solid. So you sight in on that write down what calibration you're on then in the dark if you're getting attacked you can use that traverse bar to sight in on that point so they had all 25 guns sight in on one car out there put a 200 round belt of nothing but tracers in each gun and 25 m60 machine gun shooting 200 rounds of tracers each is You could read a book by the light it give off. (laughs) That's quite the light show there. (laughs) And and as usual, you know, there's always that one kid in a family is picking his nose or something. (laughs) Had 25 machine guns. We had one that was shooting off in the South 40 somewhere. So (laughs) but the other 24 were pretty much on target.
2: That guy did not uh, want to be in the infantry.
1: No, uh, <laughs> a lot of them guys didn't. They wanted to. I've seen him. I've seen one guy hug a drill drill instructor, drill sergeant, whatever you want to call him, cr- start crying and wanting his mommy. That's the. That is the only time in any of my training I ever seen a drill instructor at a loss for what to do. <laughs> you know? well, How hey, do Tommy you how do you make a guy that. do push-ups that's hugging you and crying for his mother?
0: That's, yeah, that's a whole different, uh, you know, strategic, uh, the page in the strategic book.
1: Yeah, drill, drill Instructor Lowell, he was, he was a good guy. He, he was kind of looking around for some help or something. <laughs> Kill this guy and, off me. And naturally, none of us could crack a smile or we'd all be doing push-ups. So, so what did he do? How did that finally, play out? He, he kind of got the guy pushed off of him and <laughs> told him to go up to the barracks. We, we were all sitting out in the company street cleaning weapons, and that guy just broke down. He finally got him peeled off of him and sent back up his bunk. <laughs> Still remember his name? Last name was Rose. <laughs> uh, I don't know what ever happened to him. Basic training, yeah. That, like I said, that just teaches you how to march and salute and do the military thing and then orders come down when you complete basic training and you, you go to your different advanced individual training units like <coughs> I don't know where he went. Some guys went into artillery and some guys were truck drivers and some went into mortars and a lot of us went into <laughs> infantry. Had another guy break down when He got his infantry assignment. He started crying and wanting to go home. And even when we went, if you went infantry, it was 100% guaranteed you were going to Vietnam. But Mm -hmm. this guy just knew he was going to be the one exception. Well, he got his orders for Vietnam and he fell apart again. I wouldn't surprise me if he got killed over there. He was pretty flaky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you
0: know, in reality, all of you wanted to go home. He was just voicing it.
1: Yeah, he was, he was wanting it a lot more than all the other guys. The other guys pretty much accepted it. We had one guy that absolutely wanted to go. He was only 17. His mother had to sign a release for him, Michael Ball. So he couldn't go to Vietnam because he's only 17. He's the only guy. He went to Germany. I was in... Vietnam, oh, probably three months, and my company come in on, we'd stay out in the field for two weeks at a time patrolling and looking for the NVA, and then you got to go back up on the fire base and stay in a relatively dry bunker and eat hot food and get all your little wounds and bumps and boils and things taken care of at the battalion aid station, our mess hall was, had a series of steps down to it. it was built right on top of a mountain i was going down the steps to get something to eat and who do i see standing there michael ball he finally turned 18 oh, and got to go to vietnam <clears throat> a month a month later he blew himself up and a friend of mine setting out a claymore gee so wow. i don't know i wasn't there when it happened, I was. Uh, it was probably. Uh, I guess I was in. as a sniper then, so I was out probably with a different company. But I never that pretty good kid. I just knew him by his nickname. We called him Blue. But they said he was showing Ball how to set that Claymore up, and I, it went off for whatever reason. I don't know. I, I, was, I assume Ball being the new guy probably screwed up somehow. Jeez. yeah that that kept you pretty aware of everything when you're sitting out of claymore with a trip wire on it yeah yeah you never you ne- we used a flashlight battery to for the electrical source it only takes like a half a volt of electricity to set off a bl- electrical blasting cap uh, pretty gis are pretty ingenious you got to have insulation on your trip wire so you you take two spoons drill two holes in each one of them you break your claymore wire you have a 50 foot of claymore wire you break one of those in two and strip some wire off loop one end through one spoon one end through the other spoon you take the spoons and put them so the concave parts are touching where you're going you want your contact to the wires take a rubber band, rubber band it down to act as a spring. And you take another spoon and break the handle off. And that you put it, in between the, put it in between the two spoons to keep it from going off. And then the other end of that spoon handle, you drill a wire hole and you tie your trip wire into that, tie the other end across the trail back down there y'all you never carry your battery with you while you're doing this because you're wet it could complete the circuit and you'd be right in front of your own claymore then you go back down to the other end of the wire and since you use part of your 50 foot up you're probably 40 feet from a claymore you lay down hide the best you can and hook your (laughs) power source up and hope it doesn't go off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the hairy part is you got to go out the next morning at daylight and pick them up. You hope you remember where you put the damn thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, clay, a claymore is a devastating weapon. It, will, I don't know. I was told it would cover just about every square foot of a football field or something when it goes off. But, we killed a bunch of cows one time. We knew that <laughs> night that the NVA would come in to butcher them and take what what meat they could off of them. So we daisy chained three claymores together. You set out three claymores and you put detonation corded blasting caps or they're designed to be hooked together. And we hooked three claymores together like that, and put tripwire on a cow leg. Heard that. Mess a claymore go off in the middle of the night. We went up there next morning. We had seven dead NVA. We must have killed every one of them because their weapons and everything were still there. They were they were great at policing up weapons and stuff when they had somebody get killed. So there was nobody left to pick anything up. Did you have a good
2: barbecue that
1: night. Uh, well, not that night. <laughs> uh, we did eat water buffalo one time we supposed to you're supposed to carry at least three days of sea rations on you most guys always carried at least four his resupply is pretty iffy bad weather and stuff we went uh i think it was 19 days one time without resupply we were all getting pretty hungry eating creamer and stuff out of our coffee packets did kill a water buffalo and broke open all of our claymores to cook it with the c4 you, you can set c4 on fire and it burns really hot with, it also comes in a two pound bar looks like a big giant candy bar with an olive green wrapper on it uh, you break off a piece the uh, size of a large marble set it on fire and you instantly heat up a canteen cup full of Hot chocolate or coffee or whatever you wanted to try to make out of sea rations, but don't stomp on it because then it would detonate and take <laughs> off some oh, toes. So. You guys are like,
0: <laughs> like freaking MacGyver.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, we did MacGyver. We had, we invented a better mousetrap up under the fire base. We didn't have mice. We had rats, and they'd probably whip most American cats. Yeah. So we'd take a steel ammo can, take the lid off of it. Uh, kind of preferred a 50 cal can. They were probably 18 inches long by 10 inches deep, seven or eight inches wide. Punch a hole through each end so you could hook your trip wire up to it. Instead of having a claymore, we'd just leave a blasting cap in there, hook to the trip wire with, butter it up with some cheese or something. Mr. Rat comes in and grabs the cheese and got a blasting cap in his mouth and blows his head off. We had a lot of fun doing that. Until one night a guy was sitting on his bunk and we had that rigged up under his bunk and it filled the back of his legs full of blasting cap, shrapnel and rat brains. So they, <laughs> they suggested we not do that anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like we're just training. <laughs>
1: GIs are inventive you know yeah, yeah uh, I mean, you, you gotta
0: pass the time and, and keep your brain going I, I can't imagine
1: yeah that probably had a lot to do with it
0: was there a lot of downtime or were you always on the go
1: oh out in the field uh you were on the go yeah you have nine ambushes uh we did a lot what we called hoot raids if we had like a half to full moon we Like I said, there's always hooches in our area with civilians, you know, they might be a mile or two in between each one. It wasn't like they were densely packed or anything, but the NVA, they like to sleep out of the weather too. So when there's enough moonlight to see good, we had, as a volunteer thing, I apparently had a little better night vision than a lot of people or was adventurous or something, but. We had uh, one E-5 Wild Bill Merrill. He loved to go on hooch raids. There'd be five or six of us every night take off on a hoot raid when we had enough moonlight to see by it. We caught one guy and his... That's That was the most valuable piece of equipment as GI had out in the field was a hammock. The Army was supposed to issue jungle hammocks. I never seen a U.S. made hammock. We... We got all of our hammocks off dead VA, which their hammocks were really light, and nice. And anyway, we caught this one guy asleep in his hammock, and three or four guys probably put about a six-round burst each in him. And our lieutenant, Lieutenant Foley, is a really good guy and didn't have a hammock, so we got the hammock for him. Unfortunately, it was severely blood-stained and full of bullet holes. So he took the little sewing kit I was talking about and sewed up all the bullet holes. There's lots of old, what we called French mansions. They, probably at one time they were out there all abandoned. Some of them had fantastic brick courtyards, you know, built on some of three levels, a lot of fruit trees around on them and stuff. So Lieutenant Foley he was tickled to death of his hammock. He didn't have to sleep on the ground in the mud anymore. unfortunately slung it right over the courtyard where it had about a six foot drop down to the next courtyard there's a i think it was a lemon tree growing there tied at that lemon tree that was on the lower level another tree that was on the upper level the middle of the night we heard a rip and ah oh damn his hammock torn dude and dumped him about six feet on a brick courtyard (laughs) <laughs> he he wasn't very good at sewing. He probably should have old Monoson fix out a hammock up for him. <laughs> yeah.
0: See, these are all the things about that you don't hear about just trying to survive and and keep your sanity in in wartime.
2: So, Dale, um, you mentioned that book Chicken Hawk earlier, and I know you gave that to me to read when I was a teenager and uh brian if your listeners can get hold of that book i would highly recommend it to understand just a little bit more about what we're talking about tonight because it is a great book it's about a, a huey pilot in vietnam um so yeah i would definitely highly recommend that book chicken hawk chicken hawk
0: yeah and i also want dale get a picture of your shadow box because as you were explaining that we're you know we're not gonna have video here. This is all this is all radio.
1: Yeah. But
0: uh and then call, as Kaian's working on that. As you're as you're explaining it then people can see that. But what um what did you from the time you went in to the time you got
1: out? Well I, I didn't think I changed it any but uh I apparently did uh, First thing I noticed uh, my parents come down to Reading to pick me up at the Greyhound bus station. I don't know if you've ever been in the Reading Greyhound bus station. It's about the size of my house, which ain't very big. <laughs> it's true. And I was the only soldier in there in uniform, and they both walked right by me, went back into the little restaurant park looking and <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm the only one in uniform in here they <laughs> come back out but they, they didn't never, recognize you apparently not they would never admit they didn't but i mean <laughs> they walked within four feet of me so but uh yeah you're pretty jumpy when you come home i know mom and dad lived right across the street from the high school first couple times i was there when the bells went off over at the school uh get down on the floor and crawl under the table that got some kind of quizzical looks from mom and dad but they never said anything. And, oh, it's funny. Every, every, I think almost everybody that, well, maybe in a infantry unit, there's something they like to do when they come home, I'd go out and set my car when it was raining and just watch it rain. It couldn't get to me. I could stay dry. Just sit in the car and watch it rain. Uh, my brother, when he come home, he liked to flush the toilet. No such thing as a flush toilet in Vietnam.
0: <laughs> Just the creature uh, comforts that we're so used to that you...
1: Oh, everything. <laughs> everyday things you take for granted. You uh, have right. absolutely none of that. In a infantry company. That's, absolutely. Uh, even yeah. up on the fire base, didn't have showers or anything. You fill a five-gallon bucket full of warm rainwater or something the holes poked in it and hope the water didn't run out before you got all the soap rinsed off of you
0: yeah that i think that would probably like you said that the elements dealing with the elements would be the probably the, one of the biggest challenges because i i i think about well you just think about your body temperature if that changes two or three degrees how uh, screwed up you are oh
1: yeah yeah. heat exhaustion and heat stroke was a big problem uh, Never did bother me for some reason. I mean, other guys, you know, no different than me. No weaker, that's for sure. I mean, it would tear them up sometimes. Yeah, it's hard to describe the weather. You know, you always hear getting off the airplane. It's like when you first get there, like walking into a furnace or something. That's absolutely the truth. The smells are foreign i wouldn't say they were bad a lot of guys always think about burning shit which they did you know for half 55 gallon drums is what you crapped in and they'd have to drag them out and fill it full of diesel and set it on fire and keep stirring and burning i i never got assigned to any of those details but you got that odor around it's not bad it's just a different smell than diesel but uh the wood and everything over there gives off a different smell than wood at home the food uh back my first day in the field the delta company oh boy the old timer come up to me and asked me if i was willing to walk point point. and i being as dumb as i was i assumed that's what the new guy's job was going to be uh, i didn't think i had to authority to say no so yeah he danced a little jig and he said well i'll walk your slack for you to kind of teach you what's going on we hadn't gone a couple hundred yards we were on a pretty open hill with an old tank trail on it looked like a hill had been napalmed a lot and burned off the vegetation kind of low scrub growing back i started smelling something so I stopped and asked that guy, I said, ask him what I was smelling. He said, I don't know, I can't smell it. He says, what does it smell like? I said, well, almost like something rotten, you know? And he said, well, you're probably smelling Vietnamese. They put this fish sauce on the rice. It's kind of rotten fish. We didn't go down the hill over the crest of the hill another hundred meters. And there were about eight NVA down at a bomb crater filling canteens up with water and he tried to light a up to us he wasn't sure that they were Vietnamese or South Vietnamese or NVA you know the full uniform packs and weapons and everything so they started kind of milling around I said hell with it I put about a 10 round burst down in there amongst them never hit anyone I give one a good shower and I made at least two of them barefooted, run right out of their Ho Chi Minh sandals, which were made out of old car tires and inner tubes. So they had sore feet after I got done with them, but never found any blood trails or anything. But yeah, that was that was my first day in the field. Uh, uh, for some reason, I, I guess I was too new to be afraid. I was just pretty excited. Uh, uh, but, yeah, that's uh, some of the smells you smell. You're, I think your senses, you're, you're strung, wired tight, like they say, like a banjo string or something. You're looking for ambushes and booby traps. And I guess that's one of the things that's a source of PTSD. There's some sort of gland in your brain that isn't supposed to be working that hard. And uh, average grunt spent over 300 days in the field so you're out there 300 days out of one year at least more than that i forget the exact number just wired strung tight you know waiting for something to happen it's a wonder we didn't all have ulcers but uh yeah the the weather you could it rain like i don't know I've never, ever seen it rain that hard in the States. You you could hear it coming through the jungle canopy, probably for 500 yards before it got to you. Big raindrops hitting the canopy leaves. So you you had time to try to get ready for it. They issued us a rain jacket, but they were little short-waisted things. And you put them on, even if, what was keeping you dry, you'd start sweating inside them. So it was just extra weight. Most guys threw those away because they didn't do any good. At night you had, you usually had somebody, your hooch mate, button two ponchos together and string them up with uh, boot laces. Two men could sleep under that relatively dry is, when you got in country is issued an air mattress we call them our rubber ladies It raining so hard one night my air mattress actually floated about halfway out of our little hooch and a pretty good stream of water running through there being a dumbass <coughs> new guy was he told you when you go out on patrol make sure you pull the plug on your air mattress don't leave any air in it because it'll Heat up and break all the seams out, so, so I feel well, I could let half the air out, right' because I mean you got to blow them things up by lung power alone. I come back it looked like a great big green sausage laying there, so I had a air air pad and no air in it after that uh I got a hammock off of a guy who, uh yeah, when you're walking point and you bust an ambush or something, and you, if you kill somebody, the point man gets to go through his belongings and take what you want. So uh, that's how I got my first GI bush hat. The guy had a, <coughs> excuse me, brand new bush hat on and a brand new hammock and is a tradition in my platoon, might've been the whole company. One of the old guys took that guy's AK-47 and jacked the round out of the chamber and give it to me. And he said, this is a bullet that had your name on it. Long as you keep this with you, you, you won't get hurt. So that's what, uh, you can't hardly see it in that, uh, shadow shadow thing I got that's that AK-47 around on a boot lace that I wore that the whole time I was in Vietnam. And the guy must have been right. I, I never got wounded or anything. My son, Walter, when he went to Afghanistan, I gave him that, so he wore that the whole time he was in Afghanistan. And story about that, uh, you couldn't bring anything back from Afghanistan. They, they confiscated that round from him and he told the guy that confiscated the story and everything guy says well you can't take it home so he walked over in the formations in a few minutes guy walked over and slipped it in his hand and let him bring it home so that was pretty nice of him
0: wow yeah that's cool i didn't realize that walter had served in afghanistan
1: yeah he was a mark 19 gunner that's an automatic 40 millimeter grenade launcher on what they call the mrap uh, I forget what MRAP stands for now. Something armored personnel deal. But.
0: Well, if the military is good for one thing, it's good for acronyms. If, yeah. if, know, your service, what you learned, or that maybe I haven't, that we haven't touched on, or I haven't asked you, or Mark hasn't asked you, that you want to share with people.
1: Oh, <clears throat> I don't know. Covered a lot of it. One thing uh, I appreciate that the uh, American people were welcoming our afghan and Iraqi vets home we never never got a bit of that uh, That's for sure later later years when the Iraqi vets started coming home people started trying to welcome Vietnam vets home it actually pissed me off i I said thought to myself where where were you?" 40 years ago
0: 40 years ago yeah <laughs> Is that because of the just the, the, the horrible propaganda that the media no, the stigma that
1: oh yeah, yeah media... you know back then i mean well you saw the riots up in seattle and portland a couple of years ago back then they had riots in every major city that made those these recent riots pale by comparison it never happened to me a lot of the vets you know there'd be groups of protesters waiting for them there for throwing bags of shit at them and spitting on them and giving them the finger and everything else they could do so
0: is it cuz the media hated the war so bad that they just you were just cuz i mean people if you have half a brain you know that the soldiers are the ones that are doing the real sacrificing it's not that the politicians who yeah. cause this crap they're not out there doing it and people yeah. i think people know that now but maybe they didn't then is that why you think
1: well i i don't know just people a lot of people got too much time on their hands and they like to raise hell just for the sake of raising hell i guess but you and mark know as well as i do this area up here is pretty patriotic bunch of people Uh,
0: yeah absolutely
1: this right around the intermountain area which i consider the intermountain area from uh say bernie to alturas is what they call real vet heavy lot of lot of vets have moved into this area just to get away from people in general
2: yeah
1: uh hell you know, the little cemetery here in MacArthur has over well over two hundred veterans buried in jeez.
0: Oh, which is that. that's a huge for for those that don't know yeah. that I mean very small very very small,
1: yeah, I know uh the American Legion auxiliary ladies, they asked me to help them make a list of, uh, Vietnam vets from this area. And so I started thinking of all the people I could went over to the high school and looked at the graduation pictures to jog my memory. Uh, I think I come up with 206 Vietnam veterans just from oh. Bernie to big valley. Wow. Jeez. Uh there's been, I got a list here I made up from Fall River High School. There was uh, at least five guys were killed in Vietnam from Fall River High School. And one other guy that was married to a girl from Fall River, he was from Montgomery Creek. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a, that's a lot of guys from a school that's never graduated much more than, I think 93 people was the biggest graduating class they had in Fuller River. Yeah,
2: yeah I think we had like, what, 58? <laughs>
1: yeah. Boy, yeah, I that. think. I think my a- my class, I think, was the second largest class. We had like 91, I think. Gee.
2: So, Dale, not to open up an- another can or you know open up another hour worth of talking, just uh, your rough guesstimate, <clears throat> or maybe you even know how many POWs dubs are not accounted for still
0: POWs how many He marks oh, asking POWs how many POW, yeah
1: oh I don't know 20 at least 2,500 kind of sticks in my brain uh, has to be more than that I believe there's like probably 1,500 troops that are unaccounted for hmm uh, kind of a little side note on that was pretty cool. My brother, he's kind of a computer geek and he, I give one of my dog tags away and the other and I spent 10 days in the hospital in Da Nang with malaria. Naturally, the rear area people are notorious thieves. So I finally kind of healed up from that, went to get my clothes out of these little open lockers that in somebody had stole all my clothes and my dog tag that was in my boot was in one of them anyway dwight he uh he said i didn't know you were in the marine corps i said i didn't either why do you say that (laughs) and there's a pow mia accounting office in hawaii and they had a list of these people bought over 1400 dog dog tags from a street vendor in Da Nang. They thought it might help locate some MIAs and my dog tag was in there. And he asked me if I wanted it back and I said, sure. So, I mean, within two days that uh, office has a big long name. I, I had it like in next day mail with a really nice letter from him thanking me for my service and
2: but here, was it for the my, for, for the marines though or was it well for the i army? don't know
1: i don't know where they got the marines it says u.s army right oh, on okay. the dog tag and has your either your service number or social security number mine had my social security number and got your full name and everything but mm. yeah I, I still have that in my safe over here take it out and read it every now and then kind of brings a tear to my eye (laughs) yes sir
0: well that's a that's a significant more than a significant part of your life you know and to see what you have seen i I can't even imagine so no and what that does to you
2: so dill um just honestly from the heart i want to thank you for your service and for your sacrifice that you made i know i've told you this before. I'll tell you, I'm sure in the future again, man, I love you and I appreciate you coming on here and, (laughs) excuse me, and forgive us your time for this. It means a lot to me.
0: Yeah, like like you said, like you said in the beginning, if you're going to send these young men into war, you need to get the hell out of the way and let them do it and get out.
1: Yeah, the politicians need to stay out of mm-hmm. it. Just tell the generals here what we want done, go do it.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, so there's a go do it. You guys live pretty close to it back there. Not, I mean, not extremely close, but Angel Fire New Mexico has a Vietnam Memorial there. Started out this doctor, I think his last name is Westfall. And his son was a, I believe, a Marine in the, the lieutenant, platoon leader in the Marine Corps. Got, anyway, he got killed in Vietnam. So Dr. Westfall, he took a can full of New Mexico soil. When you get killed, the uh, military, if they can, they have the exact map coordinates <clears throat> of where it happened. So he went back to Vietnam as close to the ambush site as he could find, and. Dumped out uh, soil from New Mexico and brought a can of soil from Vietnam home and built a little chapel as a memorial to his son. And vets, veterans started hearing about it, and literally hundreds and hundreds of New Mexico vets started visiting. visit it. And word got out, in uh, and thousands and thousands. Uh, <clears throat> he had a had a picture of his son up on a shelf and uh, where the sun reaches a certain point, at a certain time of the year, he's got a window in the shape of a cross. that would shine, shine right on his son's picture. So these vets started giving him pictures. So I think, I think they put up about seven or nine pictures. His son's picture stays there all the time and people send pictures and what information they can of friends and relatives and stuff that got killed in Vietnam and they change them out every I don't know week or three days so I sent a picture of my cousin that got killed back to him I don't know I suppose they put it up but then uh like the federal government got involved with it and they built a they got a full got a Huey mounted there and a bronze statue of a GI, an RTO as a matter of fact, by the Huey. Got like a museum and they show footage from the actual GIs in Vietnam and stuff. And everybody that told me about that said, yeah, you be prepared to cry when you go see that. Allie and she was, had the same misconceptions about GIs being baby killers and everything. Went there and they showed movies, uh, medics and stuff, and little kids and old mama sons. <laughs> yeah, I cried for a while, but Allie and she took her about three days to get over it. So if you get a chance, go see that. It's-
0: and what's it called again? It's Angel uh, which, Fire
2: Vietnam Vietnam which. Veterans Memorial, New Mexico. Okay. We'll,
0: yeah. we'll put a I link just, to that.
2: I just pulled it up. It's the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, originally known as the Vietnam Veterans yeah. Peace and Brotherhood Chapel. It developed as a memorial by Gene and Dr. Victor Wistfall, following the death of their son, US Marine Corps, First Lieutenant Victor David Wistfall III to honor the memory of their son
1: yeah, another little uh, sideboard of things. My cousin that got killed, I knew he was... They divided Vietnam up into what they called I-Corps, II-Corps, Three corps and Four corps And I was in I-Corps, and Norman was killed in I-Corps. I knew that. And I never found out till just a couple of years ago that he was on the exact same fire base I worked out of and I'm pretty sure I walked right through the ambush site where he was killed There was a place there you could tell there was quite a firefight just from the piles of old brass and battle wreckage I guess you'd call it uh, pieces of rucksack and uniform and boots and stuff that you know they're they put it all in a pile and destroy it because it's no good, but they don't want uh, I would almost guarantee that's where Norman got killed. Uh, but, uh, New Eloxon was the name of the little village there, name of the fire base. Well, we called it LZ Center. We had three fire bases. There was fire, fire support base east, fire support base center, and then west. And east was too high of a mountain. They had trouble resupplying it because of the weather and everything. So they abandoned it. That left LZ Center and LZ West. And then uh, we had part of our division on uh, LZ Mary You might've heard of it. That's the last American fire base to get pretty much overrun. I had pulled bunker guard on that fire base at one time because they were all shorthanded probably a month after I was there, it got overrun. Uh, they had a Vietnamese, South Vietnamese unit supposedly guarding part of the bunker line and they let, uh, NVA sappers in and they were throwing satchel charges in all the command bunkers and everything. Uh, there's, uh, I don't know, 76 GIs wounded and 20 or 30 killed, I guess. That is kind of funny. Uh, Bob Powell come by the house one time. He had a EMT with him. And uh, Bob introduced me. He, the EMT was a Vietnam vet. I said something about LZ Marianne. He said, you knew where Marianne was? And I said, yeah, I would pulled bunker guard one time. He said, well, I was a medic on the first helicopter that landed there after they got overrun. So quite a coincidence.
0: We have no idea. And and it's easy to live here in America and have so many freedoms and to live such easy lives. We have no clue how fragile that really is. And you've... you've seen the ugly side of communism and, <laughs> and what it does to countries, what it does to people. And we don't have a clue here and yeah. we need to hear these stories. Otherwise that's why you got so many people that hate America. Cause they just don't understand. I don't think they are truly doing it to be assholes. I just don't think they get it.
1: Yeah. No. Was, I think Vietnam, especially really gotten a bad rap with all these, crazy movies like platoon and yeah i think all the ones i saw hamburger hill about yeah the 101st airborne would probably be most realistic i would say it's probably way overdone on the but those guys did try attack that hill 10 times uh we had a hill kind of like that. We only attacked it once, and they decided we didn't need to go up there and see what was up there after all. So then, <laughs> yeah, Bravo Company took a pretty good hit out of that. And then Delta Company, fortunately, I was a sniper. I was my old company, Delta Company, their helicopter landed on a booby-trapped LZ. A oh, geez. Lieutenant got killed outright. I don't know if the medic big guy i think he lost both legs and an arm i i don't know if he lived or not something like 19 other guys were hit wounded in various degrees and bravo company i happened to be with them uh, resupply helicopter come in and little nva dude put an rpg in the side of it killed both door gunners and screwed up the pilots real bad yeah yeah, there was definitely something on that hill that they didn't want to see in and whoever was in command decided we didn't need to get chewed up bad enough to go up there just just to abandon it like they did Hamburger Hill probably. Wow. Somebody had some brains anyway. Oh, I just gonna say we did have I did have some excellent officers. Uh the better of the bunch were Two were ex special forces. One was our company commander and one was a platoon leader. And then Captain Hansen, our company commander, when I first got in Delta Company, he was a ranger. <clears throat> I would have followed him anywhere he wanted to go. Uh, he took over the ranger company at Chu about the same time I went to sniper school. I thought of, I asked him, I said, I could go to the ranger company with him he said well I'd have to get ranger qualified I said well I have to go home to go to the ranger school he said oh no we'd qualify you right here in Vietnam and I didn't think I wanted to be jumping out of airplanes in Vietnam getting jump wings and stuff (laughs) so I did I didn't go that I probably wasn't tough enough to do it anyway you got to got to be a pretty tough guy to get through ranger training so yeah but we worked with rangers a few times they were all good guys none of them thought they were any better than anybody else for most part they were very modest for the whole the training they had to go to and what they did in vietnam
0: that's the kind of people you want around you that are humble
1: that's for sure
0: so
2: dale is there anybody that you want to give kind of a shout out by name that helped train you or that is still around i mean i know obviously your brother
1: yeah i know my one of my best friends still is to this day is bert weimer he lives in grass valley we've kept in touch all these years we were in basic training together then he went to Fort Knox to armor school, I believe at Fort Knox. And I managed to hook up with him a couple times in Vietnam. He, it doesn't matter what you're trained for. The army will put you where they want when you get there. So they put him in a infantry company, which happened to be one of our sister battalions. Uh, as a sniper, we got to go back to Chulai three days every month. To, have gunsmith work on our weapons and re-zero them and everything. And we, uh, the only way we got there, we would fly from our fire base down to Burt's fire base and then catch another helicopter or truck back to Chulai. And I just happened to get lucky twice. Burt's company was in from the field pulling bunker guard there. So I got to look him up, got a couple pictures of us, uh, my squad leader, Roddy Hopkins, it took me about, like I said, about 35 years to find him. He was from Dallas, Texas area. He died here a couple of years ago of brain cancer. Right now, Bert, he's suffering from Parkinson's disease. Got a, another guy that was, I was in the same company and basic with him and then different platoon. And then we ended up in Vietnam in the same company different platoons i transferred out of delta company into echo company i become a sniper he got out of delta company into echo company as four deuce mortar then a company clerk kept in touch with him all these years he lives in uh, crescent city retired school teacher so those are the three i've kept in touch with i had the reason I don't know where any of the others are really is guys that asked me for my home address when I went home, they wanted to keep in touch and about the first three guys that did that got killed or wounded real bad. So I got kind of a superstition about giving guys my home address. So yeah, just one of those things, you know, they don't have my address and I neglected to get there for whatever reason. I've tried to find some of them. One real good friend of mine, Jerry Wisdom, is from Murfreesboro, Arkansas. I don't know if he survived or not. Uh, He was on a helicopter that got shot down. I heard he got hit something like nine times. I've called back to every wisdom I could find in around Murfreesboro, either Tennessee or Arkansas. I called both places. Finally got hold of a, wife to Jerry Wisdom and explained to her what I was trying to do. She started laughing. Apparently her husband was way too young to be in Vietnam. So yeah, she she was very helpful trying to hook me up with some other people, but never did get in touch with him or hear what happened to him. Other than he got the crap shot out of him.
0: Well, maybe we can, uh, maybe we can help you find some of these too, like the social media or, or yeah. like or Like, Yeah, a... I,
1: I got some other names, uh, Wild Bill Merrill. He, I got a picture of him. He's got that wild, curly, blonde hair like uh, Freddie Chapman's daughter, no matter what you do to it. It was, and a great big, huge, bushy mustache. He loved walking point. He got his foot blown off by a booby trap. He lived in, santa monica uh don custer he got hit by the same booby trap took some shrapnel through his lungs but he come back to the company uh, i don't know where he lived i think he might have been from missouri but yeah yeah you know it's kind of funny i day i went to the airport, one of the RTOs was in Delta Company, old Black Jack Ketchum. He claimed to be a direct descendant of the outlaw Black Jack Ketchum. He drove me to the airport in a Jeep. He was RTO in Delta Company. I started crying like a baby. I was leaving, leaving the best people I ever knew in my life. Yeah, there's a, a good book about Delta Company, actually, and how it got its name, it's uh, Through the Valley by Lieutenant Colonel hum- Humphreys. He was in uh, Vietnam. He was the company commander of Delta Company 67 and 68. He lost an eye to mortar-round RPG, something. You never really know what hit you and you get hit. Anyway, he he managed to stay in the service even though he only had one eye and come back to the battalion. I guess he is a major. He's a major when he came back to the battalion. I remember seeing him around there. And then, anyway, he wrote a really good book about his time in Vietnam and I'd highly recommend reading it. Yeah.
0: And what's it called again?
1: Through the Valley.
0: Through the Valley, okay.
1: Uh, is that. By Lieutenant the... Colonel, hum... I got it. I think I might have. Well, let me look real quick in my bookshelf. It's right here. I might have the author and everything. Uh, it's right here somewhere. Uh, I'll find it. You but... said James Humphreys. Yeah, I think that might have been his first name. All I knew him was Sir.
2: <laughs> so I see a uh, through the it valley is. Vietnam 1967 through 68. Yeah, about by... the hill fights. James Humphrey he's from
1: down on the Gulf coast in Texas is where he lives yeah I'd highly recommend you read that book
0: well Dale again thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it I haven't talked to you for over 30 years so it's good to talk to you again
1: yeah I see you got a little gray in your whiskers since I seen uh, you last
0: 53 <laughs> will do 53 will do that to you
1: yeah <laughs> yeah mine's completely white <laughs> yeah at least it didn't fall out like all my cousins did
0: so. oh yeah uh, yeah i'm still god bless me with that i still got that so yeah i'm not gonna fight that And mark does too so but uh but yeah thank you so much for for sharing this these experiences because uh you know they're, they're getting lost
1: yeah well you're welcome uh you got me to talk a lot more than i thought i would i guess
0: well i figured it would i figured i figured things would come i mean that's that's a big part of your experience on this planet and so that's not something you easily forget i wouldn't think so not,
1: not some sometimes it seems like it was 50 some years ago and sometimes it seemed like it's yesterday so
0: well, i can't imagine uh you know going through that kind of horror and the things you see and you know worrying wondering if you're going to be dead every five seconds i can't imagine that kind of stress yeah you know
1: yeah uh, you know he's pol i don't know the politicians should all have to do that did yeah they all should consider a lot of their wars they get in that's for sure
0: yeah absolutely but they don't so
1: no that's for sure
0: so Alrighty, sir. Well, we will, uh, I'll, I'll let you guys know when it's all wrapped up and ready to go and live and, and send you ways to listen to it if you want. And then you can, you can hear yourself
1: talk <laughs> about it again, if you want. Okay. Yeah. Sound like a plan.
0: All righty, Dale. Thank you so much again. Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Parish the Thought Show. Hey, thanks again for listening to the show. I am so grateful you're here and continue to support my efforts. Uh, We're doing something a little new. It's called Ask Brian Anything. If you have questions, comments, concerns about any previous episode, or just want to know my perspective on anything, please send those to parishpodcast at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-R-I-S-H podcast at gmail.com, and I'll feature them on an upcoming episode.